It's not a drill. What are you waiting for? I'm jumping out a window! Oh, sorry, good luck. Coffee or tea? Do you have lapsang? It's making something new. Do not swear in front of the kids. I didn't swear, you cunt. Este amor apasionado por volver. I will keep this diary for one year, and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. You didn't have to drill a little hole in the dentist today, did you? Of course not. Huh? I said, of course not. Hello and welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, your host Rob Daniel, editor of electric-shadows.com and I'm very happy to say, as always, I'm joined by my learned co-host, Mr Rob Wallace. And as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Shall we do all those plugs that we sometimes remember to do? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, If uh, you want to read my writing, you can find it intermittently at www.ofallthefilmsites.com or follow me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. And for me, you can go to Electric Shadows at the address that I just mentioned. And if you want to go to Twitter, go to at Rob... No, yes, I'll get there eventually. At Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. And if you want to subscribe to the podcast, it's on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast iTunes, that should be enough. Or you can just do a general search for it. And uh, that would be great, and we would say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Right. We are recording this on the 28th of December 2018, so it's time for the end of year review, where we will run through our top ten films of the year, and see if we agree with each other's selections. Hopefully we'll still be friends by the end of it, but I'm making no guarantees. Feels like it's been in the pipeline for a while. The massive, irreconcilable blowout. (laughs) Yes, indeed. They got to 54 episodes and then it all went horribly wrong. Because Rob just couldn't understand why Skyscraper is quite simply the finest film ever made. But which Rob? That's right. Neither of us, because it was a bit... It was was fine. Adequate. (laughs) Rampage was better. Much better. Skyscraper needed more monkey. So to keep this under three hours, we're just going to list out the selections 10 to 6. Inevitably, there'll be a little bit of commentary there. And then from 5 to 1, we'll get into a bit more meaty discussion. So, Rob, do you want to uh, list out your 10 to 6? Uh, Certainly. Uh, My uh, number's 10 to 6 on my list of the top 10 films of 2018, based on UK release. Oh, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Between Um, the 1st of January and the 31st of December... For me, my number 10 was Phantom Thread. Uh, my number 9 was Lady Bird. My number 8 was Mary Poppins Returns. My number 7 was Mission Impossible Fallout. My number 6 was Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Well, some of those we're going to discuss in a bit more detail in my top 5, but I won't reveal which ones. So, my number 10 was Roma. My number 9 was A Quiet Place, which, to throw something in, also was the film that I jumped at the most this year. That was just such a well-engineered suspense engine. My number eight, Suspiria, the remake that should have never worked, but worked very well indeed, and I was just so happy that it did. Seven, Mary Poppins Returns, the sequel that should never have worked, but, oh, worked delightfully. I've seen it twice now, and it's so wonderful, and it contained real Marvel in there, and go on, let's talk a bit about Mary Poppins Returns. Yeah, it's rare that I, you know, I went to see it uh, early at a press screening, uh, my 
housemate Alex was kind enough to take me along to, and walked out absolutely buzzing totally charmed by it to the extent that I uh, convinced my mum dad and younger sister to all go see it on Boxing Day and what did they think of it they felt it was lovely too excellent well a shout out to Adrian who is a regular listener he was very very nice took me along to a wonderful special screening of it that had a cast Q&A afterwards and also the director of Marshall and the writers and the composer it was great I just thought this works so wonderfully. I think it also proves that film is not always an auteur medium because I don't think that Chicago 9 and Into the Woods director Rob Marshall is alone in making Mary Poppins Returns a great film. I think that everyone involved knew that they couldn't disgrace the original. It's certainly so. the most dynamic of his uh, so far. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, given it's a, it's a remake of a 19... 19- uh, sorry, remake? Sorry, see... In some aspects, a, a reimagining, but uh, but a sequel to a 1964 film. I think actually, really, that's right. That's, that sounds like it's taking away from it. He does he, do, he does do a tremendous job with it, as do as do the entire cast and crew, paying homage to the original. It is very much you know they, there aren't any of the they don't reuse any of the songs overtly. They obviously use some of the same motifs. Yeah, and it's got a real energy and it, it and it rattles along. It reminded me um there's a one sequence in it when uh, where I'll be allowed to say. Where they go inside a a bowl. Yeah, Did you yeah. say that? Yeah, where they uh, they travel inside a bowl, uh, this porcelain bowl, the art upon it, as as, as they did it with the um, the chalk paintings in the original Mary Poppins, and it reminded me a bit of uh, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. I don't know if you. Oh uh, yes, indeed. Yeah, it does have an element. Yeah, that, really it? does. Yeah. And and it has such energy and it land, and the songs are great. I managed to get the opening, the, the original, the opening song of it, "Lovely London, uh, Lovely London Sky," I think it's called, yeah. stuck in my parents' heads, which is you know my my success, the Christmas period. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I completely agree with that it looks the part I mean it looks absolutely wonderful but it looks like it was made at the same time as the original sometimes some of it just looks old-fashioned in that well the in that wonderful way the animation the you know the animation animation and and it's it's because I saw the original over Christmas again and you, you forget how everything in that film happens on a much smaller scale than in Returns because Returns they look like it could have been shot on location largely even if you know you're aware that based on logistics and how in the sequel yeah yeah it probably wasn't whereas the original is it's very clearly a backdrop a backlot elements of soundstage and everything's just a bit more and this isn't taking away from it but a little bit more cramped a little bit more dingy than you kind of remember it being yeah, that's fine. <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, mostly, mostly in comparison to no, the sequel. No. Yeah, the original I think is a flawless film, but it is a film that is clearly made in 1964 and looks as a thing. So I think that the original looks to modernise the way that the sorry, I think that the sequel looks to modernise the way the original did. Then I thought Emily Blunt was great as Mary Poppins. She inhabited Mary Poppins, perfect. inhabited the character as a character, didn't just do a pastiche of Julie Andrews thought that Lin-Manuel Miranda was very good in the Dirk, not Dirk, Dick Van Dyke role. It is a sequel, but it does echo the general yeah. structure, or echo the general structure of the original film, which I didn't actually think was a problem. And, yeah, the songs, my mum really had an issue with the film because it didn't have supercalifragilisticexpialidocious in it. And it's like, well, I actually quite think that it, it was quite brave not to put any of those songs in because that would just be fan service. It had one of my favourite songs probably in the last couple of years in it, which is The Cover Is Not The Book. The, this yeah. sort of bawdy musical number that... Yeah. Titles are like signs, and if you read between the lines, you'll find your first impression was mistook. 
more. A cover is nice, but a cover is not the book. That's odd because you're not because you know Mary Poppins with a Cockney accent. Yeah, and I think that kind of goes to the. I've not read the books, but apparently she's weird in the books and a little bit more dangerous and a bit more kind of wild. And I think that might have been a nod to how she's in the books. There's a song called The Place Where Lost Things Go. It's the Feed the Birds of this one. Mm. And I think that's just an absolutely beautiful song. And that's the one that should be Oscar nominated. Do you ever dream or reminisce Wondering where to find what you truly miss Well, maybe all those things that you love so waiting in the place where the lost things go that's a great song and, and, gen- and generally quite like you know set moving and there's a song which uh, Ben Wishaw does which is a very quiet you know little uh, number called uh, A Conversation which is just genuinely oh it's like okay it's going to be welling up a bit they had genuine emotion and a really nice heart and a really good old fashioned sense of wonder and marvel that ironically Marvel doesn't have. I was thinking this is the this is the family blockbuster that everyone should be going to see because it does have staggering set pieces in it, but they are much more imaginative than we're seeing in most blockbusters right now. And there is just something gloriously old fashioned about this film. Anyway, so that was my number seven. So number six, Leave No Trace, which I think we might be coming to a little bit later. So I will leave that for the time being. So. Shall we alternate now between our five to ones? Um, so what's your number five? My number five is Leave No Trace. Huzzah. Directed by Deborah Granick, uh, who I believe also co-wrote the uh, script for it. Well, ad- adapted the script. It's like, I think it's quite possibly going to get a best adapted screenplay norm. Yes, it's based on the novel My Abandonment by Peter Rock, uh, and co-written by Anne Rossellini. Deborah Granick, of course, did Winter's Bone, mm, yes. which brought Jennifer Lawrence to stardom. This potentially could bring to stardom a young actress in it called Thomasin Mackenzie. Mackenzie, that's it. Who uh, I voted for at the on the UFCS. Yes, me too. So oh, we're in the Online Film Critic Society, and she was my first choice for Best Supporting Actress. As I think she might have been mine, or at least she was one of my picks. And essentially, it's about this dad, played by Ben Foster, who is implied is, is an ex-army vet with PTSD, living in the uh, the woods in Oregon. Yeah. Um, with his daughter living a sort of fairly rough life. You know, and they're comfortable and they're happy, but then the authorities turn up and say, well, actually, obviously, you're not allowed to do this. And it's about their difficulties reintegrating back into society, but it's never overwrought with it. It's a very sort of gentle, studied film that I, th- I think you described it. I'm not sure you used the exact words. I might be a, a kind of um, just decency porn. Uh, I might have called it decency porn the thing I really loved about this film was so it is about this guy who has chosen to live off the grid and he's very very capable at doing that and his daughter is very very capable as well of doing that because he has raised her but there comes a point where you have to interact with other people or she does and he finds it quite difficult to do that it's almost like a series of vignettes as they come into contact with different people And it's one of those things that everyone wants to help them. So the people at social services aren't there to try and ruin their lives and they're not there to try and separate them. They're trying to make it work within the system of laws that exist. Everything may be corrupt at the top and the people running institutions may be venal and just... Apathetic and, yeah. Yeah, and just not interested in actually looking after people. But 
at the ground level, everyone's trying to do their best for each other. And I just thought that was a really good message and it rang authentic. And uh, yeah, I, it's, it's an odd film because it's uplifting, but also really moving and just has this underlying thread of sadness to it. It reminded me, uh, far less bleak and I think less devastating, but a touch of sort of Manchester by the sea in terms of yeah. being, being in part a portrait of this guy who is, try, is doing his best to get along, but chances are isn't going to get better. Like, this is probably the level that he's going to be functioning at. He's only capable of going so far. And it's not because he doesn't care, and it's not because... It's just that things, certain things have happened that mean that this is the kind of the way he is. Ben Foster it's, uh, is you know, a tremendous actor. He's played quite a lot of live wire types in recent years. You know, Hello High Water and uh, The Programme and... Yeah, so the program he played, Ron Armstrong. Armstrong. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but in this one he's very subdued, and he, he manages to convey a lot with sort of grunts. And the only person he really talks to is his daughter. Uh, yeah, I thought, and, he and was... he's a good dad. And the end, but he's a good dad living with his daughter in a tent in the wilderness because he has undiagnosed mental issues. Yes, that's <laughs> potentially possibly diagnosed mental issues. Well, no, probably I... diagnosed, but yeah, un- because... undealt with because he is finding it hard to deal with it. I thought he was great in it as well. It's it's annoying this because this is one of those films where if there's any justice, Thomas e. McKenzie will be Oscar nominated, as will he, as will Deborah Granick and Anna Rossellini for best screenplay. And this is I would put this up for best film as well. It's a really well crafted character study that again is a good look at America right now in terms of the challenges that institutions face. But I think this is just too smaller film to be recognised it's quiet yeah there's no grandstanding there's no big Oscar moment which makes it all the more better but also I just think it hasn't got the money behind it to give it a big push when it's going to be up against stuff that yeah like a star is born or something like that yeah and I guess this is also a film that however much he deserves that Oscars aren't going to do anything for it it's one of those ones that people look back and go it'll be on a lot of underrated or hidden gem lists or yeah. of, of films that people are like oh yeah do you remember seeing that yeah I don't know I'm not sure if I yeah and the people going back to it and sort of either rediscovering it or discovering it for the, for the first time okay so I Tonya is my number five this was a real surprise. No one thought that a Tonya Harding film. So Tonya Harding is, of course, the Olympic skater who became embroiled in a bid to dispose of a rival of hers that then kind of span out of hand when all the morons in Tonya Harding's life just decided to try and go off on this mission to... That stack, she may or may not have been aware of. Which she may or may not have been aware of, to, to stack the decks against her opponent. Nancy Kerrigan. Nancy Kerrigan, that's right, yeah. In ways that ultimately became rather criminal and violent. I mean, they started fairly criminally and violently, I mean... Yeah, well, well, it was lots of talk to begin with, wasn't it? And then it was... But it was one of those that I thought, okay, so there's a Tony Harding film, I vaguely remember hearing about her. So Margot Robbie is getting some quite good reviews for this. And then I watched it and thought, wow, this is basically Goodfellas (laughs) for the criminal element of the Winter Olympics Brigade, if there could be such a thing, which wasn't something that I was expecting to see. It's directed by Craig Gillespie, who did Lars and the Real Girls, which I thought was okay. Um, He also did The Finest Owls, which was alright. But this one, though, he seems to have really vibed with the material, and he just directs with the energy of Scorsese in Goodfellas. And there's a lot, you know, as you said, she may or may not have known about it. There's a lot of break in the fourth wall. I mean, come on! What kind of 
friggin' person bashes in their friend's knee. Unreliable, consciously unreliable narration. And people turning to camera and saying, I don't think this happened. I never did this. But it also seemed like a great Coen Brothers film that wasn't made by the Coen Brothers. Some of the characters in there just seem to have come from a cross between The Big Lebowski and Blood Simple. What can you tell us about Tanya Harding? I don't know a Tony Harding. <laughs> Aren't you her bodyguard? I thought it was quite sympathetic to her because she is quite... A- she is quite a controversial figure in terms of how much she was involved with it, how much you could argue that there was a class bias against her because she just had a preternatural ability. She worked very, very hard to become an Olympic figure skater, but she also just seemed to be naturally gifted in it as well. But she came from a very working class background, was just seen as white trash, and so therefore I think there was a class bias against her as well, particularly with her punishment that she ultimately receives, which seemed incredibly punitive. So yeah, I thought it was funny and it was moving and I really liked the energy that it was filmed with. So I told you, I thought it was great. Your number four. My number four was Coco, the Pixar animation from this year about a young boy, I believe his name is Miguel, who lives in Mexico, who uh, has dreams of being a musician, but for whatever reason, um, his family is dead against it. His family are cobblers. Then one day he, uh, well, I, I, won't, I won't spoil it, even though, most people have already seen it by this point <laughs> but here he ends up crossing into the uh, land of the dead and discovers that uh, unless he can get the blessing of an ancestor in a certain amount of time he'll be he'll have to stay there and it's it's really bright and vibrant in terms of how it depicts this world and the sort of the Mexican culture and it's also a film as the best Pixar uh, uh, you know it's not it's not just quote unquote for kids it's also about what it means to grow old and what it means to have family and legacy and to be remembered or forgotten. And admittedly, I went to see it shortly after my uh, both my uh, nan and my grandmother, both my mum's mum and my dad's mum, had died. So I was, I was, I was in an emotionally open place for the, to this film. Right. No, but it, I just think it's beautiful and really up there with the best of Pixar for me. It's an interesting one, this, and I'm not going to slag it off. This one didn't have the emotional punch I thought it would, and talking to you and our friend Ben, who also really liked it, liked it as much as you did, it was like, am I just too old to get on board with these films that are family films that are dealing about death? Because I am closer to merging with the infinite than you are. Yeah, I like Coco. I thought it, it looked lovely. It didn't engage me as much as I hoped it would. But uh, I think that might be an age thing now. I just think it might be one of those things where it's like, well, this is ultimately designed for a younger audience. But I will watch it again, and I will let you know. Say, so I probably, and I won't, uh, I know that you re- you liked Incredibles 2 more than I did. I didn't want to say that, but I do, And yes. I probably <laughs> won't rewatch that, because... Incredibles 2? I don't think I'm going to get anything from it on a... Oh. I liked Incredibles 2. I didn't want to say that because it just makes you look so vacuous, but uh, Incredibles 2, I thought, yes, I did get more out of than Coco. So anyway, make of that what you will. My number four, Mission Impossible Fallout, a film that I saw three times. Did you see it the third time? I saw it three times. Three times, yeah. This is what all blockbusters should be. Well, all action blockbusters should be for me. I just love this film and loved it more every time I saw it. Because... It understands that an action blockbuster can just be a self-contained thing that doesn't have to 
draw a lot of other elements in. I mean, it is the sixth film in a franchise. And again, it's like the sixth film in your... It is the sixth one, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. The sixth film in your franchise is by far the best one. Wow. I don't... I've got a real soft spot for the original, which is obviously more of a, a thriller than a... Uh, I mean, it's got some pretty big, slightly CGI, CGI heavy action sequences. Yeah, it is mad how they've gone. F- in in the first film, there's a, there's a scene where Tom Cruise is sat at a table with you know um, with a government functionary, and he uh, he ends up having to make an escape by uh, using explosive chewing gum to blow up a tank of water and basically leaping through the fish tank as water is spilling everywhere. And they were everyone was at the time was like, yeah, Tom Cruise, he did that for real. You know, that's really that's really amazing commitment to his craft. Now something like twenty years later, yeah. he he's. <laughs> Throwing himself across rooftops and turning his ankle into jelly, and then finishing the shot because he's he's not only just you know, he's not just the star of the film, he's also the producer and clearly incredibly committed on both accounts. And yeah, he's and jumping just, out of planes at twenty five thousand feet to do a halo jump, for which you need oxygen. He's training for a year to do that to just for a sequence in this film. He's stunt piloting his own helicopter. I looked up his net worth on the internet. Apparently he's worth about $560 million. And I don't think there's anyone else who's worth that amount of money that is just risking their life to please the cinema-going public. It's like, Tom, thank you so much for what you do for us. I'd say keep on doing it, but i quite like you not to die horribly in some stunt that goes wrong. Let's see what Top Gun 2, where he's going to be flying jets around, see what that has for us. But... Yeah, this one I just thought this is great. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, I'd love to see Tom Cruise take on another sort of more sort of serious dramatic role, um, which he hasn't done for a while. Um, no, but you know, no, yeah, just focus on this. Do Mission Impossible. Do another Edge of Tomorrow. Mm, that'd be good. Don't bother with another Jack Reacher or anything else in the in the dark universe. These films, they're big, polished, incredibly well executed, smart, funny action blockbusters. Yeah, great. Tick 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 tick. It is, it's just, just had an absolute blast sitting there. And I think it's one of those things where Tom Cruise has some odd <laughs> beliefs, but he's a proper movie see star. Our, see our podcast on The Mummy. <laughs> yes, indeed, see our podcast on The Mummy. He has some odd beliefs, but he's a movie star. And I will always go and see one of his films. And I was so looking forward to Jack Reacher. It wasn't very good. And I worked with it for at least half the film before I realised, no, this isn't going to give back. The Mummy was just dreadful. So he's had a bit of a you know a wobble, his last couple of films have been shite but this one oh and I got the Blu-ray for Christmas and I can't wait to watch it again and and Henry Cavill is great in it as well or Henry Cavill always say his name wrong he's great and he reloads his arms everyone says that but it is great when he reloads his arms and grows a moustache as well at the same time in some weird bit of CGI or maybe it's just all the testosterone <laughs> in that scene that means he just sprouts facial hair because it's so manly. Everyone in it's great. But the women in it are great as well. I thought that Rebecca Ferguson, Rebecca Ferguson is great coming back from Ghost, no, not Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation. Rogue Nation. Um, and Vanessa Kirby as well yeah. is, uh, is, who plays like a, a go-between who has slippery loyalties. But she, I thought, just had the right level of kind of film noir femme fatale for the action film and another vibe. Just, and another right. callback to the original film again yes indeed that's right because she plays the daughter of a character from the original film the original film actually being one of those that after we did the fallout podcast i went back and watched it again because i had watched it and thought it was a bit creaky i don't know i just wasn't in the mood for it maybe then because i watched it again and enjoyed it much more and thought it rattled along really well so yeah fallout oh the best action film of the year by far 
Anyway, what's your number three? My number three, on a slightly different scale, <laughs> is uh, Lucky, the uh, directorial debut of, uh, John Ca- of actor John Carroll Lynch and the swan song of Harry Dean Stanton. It is about a nonogenarian <laughs> ex-Navy uh, living in, um, I think it's Arizona? Living in the desert in uh, western United States. And basically about him coming to terms with his own mortality... <laughs> 90 years old <laughs> yeah 90 years old in California uh, living in uh, desert California and his sort of his sort of daily routine getting up is doing his stretches and hey, he has a bit of a funny turn he goes to see the doctor and the doctor basically says you know well you smoke and you do all this stuff you're not meant to do you're 90 something I can't in all good faith tell you to stop lungs are great even though you smoke you get much exercise I walk around all the time I do five yoga exercises every day nice outfit there cowboy I was scared to death. I started thinking there's nothing out there. It's all black. The void. It's really just sort of simple and humorful and well observed. And the supporting cast, you know, Harry Dean Stanton is marvelous. Gives, you know, it gets wonderfully craggy and ornery, but full of pep. Yeah, full of pep. And, you know, and the supporting cast are great David Lynch, Ron Livingston, Ed Begley Jr., Tom Skerritt. And. It's a very small, very low-key film that reminded me a lot in, in our way of uh, Patterson, the uh, Jim Jarmusch one, the right, film yeah. that was my favourite from a couple of years ago, which is about a bus driver. And just sort of observing the small details and the small absurdities and tragedies of life, which is, oh, yeah. I've discovered, has kind of become my jam. This is the kind of film that you just respond well to, I think. Which is nice. It is a good film. I liked it. It reminded me of The Straight Story. Uh, not just the David Lynch thing, but and not just the fact that Harry Dean Stanton has a small role in The Straight Story. It seems like a spiritual kind of sequel to The Straight Story. I did like it. I thought it was small and it was modest, but it was really well played. It all takes place in this utterly nondescript town. But everyone's kind of made a life there and at the local bar everyone just kind of rubs along and they all kind of like hearing the same old stories over and over again um i don't think it quite had the emotional heft that i thought it would but i i did really enjoy it apparently it was only shot it was shot in only 18 days mm. which is one of those where you can see yeah i could see that you just, people sat around having conversations it is yeah and john carroll lynch is is one of those Actors that you would recognise, but you wouldn't know his name. Maybe is he's the As prime boss, suspect for Zodiac? In Zodiac, yes, he can do. He's the husband in Fargo. His husband in Fargo. He's a big lumbering man, which he can use to be either really quite lovable or completely menacing. And yeah, I think the husband in Fargo and the prime suspect in Zodiac are the perfect examples of that. Um, I thought The Lucky was a nice film. There are some things in this universe, ladies and gentlemen, that are bigger than all of us. And a tortoise is one of them. So my number three, which actually isn't in your top ten, I've just realised, is The Shape of Water, the film that won the Best Picture Oscar this year, directed by Guillermo del Toro. Again, I really liked it, but it hasn't hugely stuck with me. It's not a film I find myself thinking about. I know what you mean in a way. This is one that what I thought would be my number one. It actually dropped down a couple of places. I love del Toro. I love the way that he can graft a fairy tale into or graph realism onto a fairy tale this of course is an homage to 50s science fiction monster films it's got touches of the creature from the black lagoon in there but it's about a cleaner played by sally hawkins uh, who's deaf and she works in a government facility in the it's the early 60s isn't it or maybe the mid 60s it's around the time vietnam is just beginning to work to gear up and the civil rights movement and she isn't very good at getting on with other people, but she has an affinity for other outsiders. With water. 
with water and with water so the first sequence in the film is a dream the set underwater and she meets a fish man who has been captured from the amazon and they are testing on him or they are planning to test on him and she thinks that she has to rescue him and from there lots of different things happen and again it's one of the del toro things where the real monsters are the people so here is michael shannon as a government agent who's in charge of the operation for the fish man but he i thought was a good slightly conflicted figure in terms of he was doing what he thought was right for his country and also for his career but he wasn't really it wasn't making him happy he's going for the buick he wants to embody this american exceptionalism but he still is uncomfortable about the morality or the the lack of you can see yeah there are certain things are playing on him but he's a man who can only express himself through authoritarianism and violence and finds that these are not really working for him when He's faced with this extraordinary situation and materialism because, as you said, he wants the fancy car. I mean, I can I can express myself through very long film podcasts, so so maybe maybe (laughs) I should try find some materialism. Yes, I'll go for the authoritarianism. You go for materialism, and we'll see where we are a year from from now. Oh my god, they're both millionaires! It worked really well. It turns out that being a complete bastard is actually the way to get ahead. Who knew? No, we will always, I think, speak for Rob here, we will always go the leave no trace route of decency rather than authoritarian violence. But, uh, never say never. Where where the world's going. (laughs) But The Shape of Water, yeah, I thought was, there's lots of subtext about lots of other marginalised groups and uh, discriminated against groups. And and again, I thought that, that the message of the film was right. I really liked... The atmosphere of the film. The look of the film is absolutely lovely. It has the nice Del Toro elements of harsh reality invading on on a fairy tale world. It's not Pan's Labyrinth, which I think is his masterpiece, but I thought this was an excellent film. So then on to number two. Yeah, which is a film that I uh, didn't make your top ten, notably. Oh, yes. uh, Annihilation. Annihilation. So what's that? The uh, the new sci-fi from uh, Alex Garland, who uh, you know was a, a sort of very prolific screenwriter, but made his directorial debut with Ex Machina. Yes, he did, which I thought was very good. <laughs> Implying certain things. Um, <laughs> Ex Machina is an uh, sorry. Ex Machina. Annihilation is an adaptation of a book by Jeff Vandermeer. It is about, in brief, a mysterious phenomenon, sort of a pearlescent bubble that swallows up a big patch of marshland in the I think it's meant to be like southeastern United States and begins slowly expanding and the military don't know how to cope with it It, it's distorting whatever they send in you know even radio signals basically end up sending in this team of experts uh, led by Natalie Portman whose husband uh, played by Oscar Isaac had been one of the first people sent in it's beautiful check this out it's like they're stuck in a continuous mutation anything interesting in there no I just that thought it was an incredibly obscure, it's obscure, but poetic meditation on death and change and all these grand themes. I thought it was an incredibly profound film. It has a very specific tone and it does have weird bear, skull-faced bear creatures and people turning into plants. There was, it would have a fairy tale feel where these things not presented it with like a grim scientific sort of objectivity to them. There's like a Cronenbergian yes. biological inquisitiveness. Yeah, certain things are happening to the life forms that are in there, which makes for some quite vivid creations. And I just thought it was probably the best sci-fi film I've seen at least in a few years. 
It reminded me of Arrival, another film that I thought was good but I had issues with. Did it remind you of Arrival? Yeah, it did remind me of Arrival in terms of dealing with sort of grand ideas. I really liked Arrival, but I found the, the sort of the resolution a bit pat. Mm. In a way that, I mean, Annihilation does not offer easy answers. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very basic reading you could go for. But I think the film really does reward... It's one of those, and this is going to sound pretentious or judgy, it kind of rewards as much as you're willing to put in. Uh, which, you know, you could just say, well, no, it's not there. It's just you reading too much into it. My, my, my review basically turned into a haiku at one point. <laughs> Good review. My issue with this was I thought there was some great stuff in there. I thought there were some real plot holes in there. In terms of they just seem to be throwing things into the orb or in, into the bubble without really thinking about it. Like, why don't you put your hand in there and then take it out and see what happens? And I know they just say, oh, why don't you just tie a rope to someone and then you pull them out after they've gone in? Just to ask them what they thought of it. And the first hour I thought was good and had some really striking moments. There's a, a scene when they find videotape of the previous expedition party and what's happened is really chilling the cinematography and it reminded me of Southern Comfort what's Southern Comfort? Uh, it is Southern Comfort is a uh, a drama a 1981 drama about a squad on training in the swamps of Louisiana which would explain um, why Annihilation reminded me of that being set in a similar place there's a certain sort of quality of light in it and the sort of the, the hanging like, what do you call it, hanging moss? From the trees, that's right, yeah. yeah and it's, it's very peculiar, but that's, that's what it reminded me of. But it's an excellent film, everyone should watch it. But yeah, I thought that Annihilation was... I had issues with it. Um, I enjoyed the first half more than the second half. I thought the ending... I think I might just be going for that basic reading you were talking about, but I thought it was one of those that didn't quite know what to do with itself. Again, which I thought was something that happened with Arrival, that you have... It has stunning moments, but... Overall, it's like, I'm not entirely sure you knew what My you wanted to. My reading the ending of Annihilation is, and I, we won't spoil the ending, but it doesn't matter. And it not mattering isn't a cop-out. It not mattering is actually fundamentally, really interestingly, I think, the point. Right. And we, and we, can, we can discuss this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we, we won't discuss it. But the cast is very good. So you've got Natalie Portman, Tessa Thompson... Jennifer Jason Lee, who is just you know, good to see in a film again. Benedict Wong's in it as well. I mean, it's Oscar Isaac. Oscar yeah. Isaac. And it was an interesting film, wasn't it? Because it, there was some controversy around the fact that it was going straight to Netflix and lots of people said, this is so good, it should get a cinema release. You should be able to see it on a big screen. Which then meant, off the back of that in the States, it did get a cinema release. I think it did about $30 million or something. But then it's like, well, would this have done $30 million if it hadn't have got all this buzz from being a Netflix film? And if it didn't have the kind of exclusivity and the... Yeah, so, yeah, it's one of those that goes round and round a little bit. Well, my number two is, fittingly, a film that you had issues with and is also the film that you thought paled next to Lucky, which you'd seen at the LFF just before you watched this film. So it's all beginning to tie in now. And that's Last Flag Flying, which is a Richard Linklater film. It is about three ex-Vietnam vets, played by Steve Carell and Brian Cranston and Lawrence Fishburne, set in 2003, Christmas time, so just after the shock and awe war in Iraq has started in the April of that year. And Richard Linklater and the writer have described it as a spiritual sequel to a film called The Last Detail, and it's written by 
is co-written by Daryl Ponixon, who also wrote the book, and he wrote the book The Last Detail. So The Last Detail was a 1973 film, directed by Hal Ashby, starring Jack Nicholson, as um, a military policeman who's having to, along with his partner, played by Otis Young, having to escort a very young Randy Quaid to uh, the brig, to the military prison. Uh, I think they're naval military policemen. And basically, Randy Quaid hasn't, hasn't done anything but he's going to go to prison for a long time because I think he stole some towels or something from an officer or from, yeah, an officer's wife or something like that. It's, it's kind of ridiculous that he's having to go to prison. So they decide to give him one big weekend before he goes to prison. This is Steve Carell is someone who turns up at Brian Cranston's bar. They knew each other in Vietnam. Steve Carell's son has died in Iraq too. And he wants Brian Cranston and Lawrence Fishburne who he has a history with in Vietnam to help him escort his son's body home so he can bury it. This turns out to be harder than anyone first realizes and lots of different things ensue. I thought we were going to a funeral. We are going to a funeral. Just looks like it's gonna take a little longer to get there. What you gonna do, strap the coffin to the roof of your car? We could do that. And the reason why I thought this was the second best film of the year, and I did watch it again just to check that it was as good as the first time I watched it, is so go on. Okay. <laughs> Rob's going to have some issues with this. But I thought this is the kind of film that I love because it's like we are not going to be in any way showy in terms of the visual style of this film. But it is a very, very handsome film to look at. It's I think it might be one of those films that's all shot. If it's not all shot in real locations, then I think there's only a few sets that are used. It looks like an authentic American film. And the performances are uniformly first rate. So Brian Cranston and Lawrence Fishburne are kind of like the good and not bad angels, but Brian Cranston just plays someone who is always annoyingly questioning everything and has a real problem with authority, but loved being in the Marines and loved the duty of it's being kind of in the Marines. Scruffy, garrulous. Yes. And uh, Steve Carell is kind of placed in the middle of the two of them and And he's kind of he's very Quiet, kind of slightly buttoned-down guy. Obviously, really deep in grief. Yeah, he kind of finds himself stuck between um, Sal, I think his name is, and Mueller, who yes. is formerly known as was it Mueller the Mauler or something like that? Yeah, Mueller the Mauler. So Lawrence Fishburne is a reverend who is basically born again, but was a it was real. A bit, it was now a bit of a stuffed shirt. Yes, but was a real live wire in Vietnam. And Brian Cranston's Sal, who's someone who was always up for disciplinary things, it seems to be, in Vietnam as well. And Steve Carell plays Doc, who was a medic. I haven't seen these men in decades. They represent a dark period in my life. That went down awfully quick. Drinking for two now, you got old and boring. I thought this dealt really well with issues of duty and sacrifice and aging. Again, it was one of those, I think, that there is some similarities with Lucky in terms of things having happened years before that you are just coming to terms with now, things that yeah, you're returning to your to your past. Also America at the time of the first Iraq war and just there's something that's played for laughs, but you can kind of see how the suspicion of, of anyone that looked different and the way that that was just beginning to really come out at that point after 9-11 and around the Iraq war and now has just yeah, led into Trump being so successful with his presidential campaign that was based on an anti-migrant policy. That's all in there as well. It's really moving. I thought it was really funny. It's a road trip, so of course they all go on a journey and an emotional journey as well. Um, and by the end of it, I was really both times actually, was really, really moved and thought, hmm, this is a massively overlooked film. It got a scant release because it was funded by Amazon, so it got a very, very small release in January of this year before going to Amazon very quickly. 
So if you subscribe to Amazon, then I would recommend watching Last Flag Flying, because you probably haven't seen it yet. I, again, I like to. I, I just found it a bit by the numbers, especially for a Linklater film. Because Linklater, you know, previously, I think the film just before that had been Everybody Wants Some, which is basically a spiritual sequel to Days and Confused, and, you know, has a really a real shaggy dog, freewheeling, anything-can-happen feel to it, you know, hazy days of summer. And I, I guess it, maybe, maybe it's something to do with the road trip formula... I, di- I just didn't. I thought I thought there were some really nice character moments, but I never got that same. And again, because it's so, because it is they're driving somewhere for a purpose. I never got that sense of freedom or possibility from this film that I'd, that. And maybe that's part of the issue going in expecting a link later film or a film that's recognisably sort of in you know, his style. Yeah. And maybe maybe I do need to give it give it another watch and sort of review it on it, try and rewatch it on its own merits. But I just didn't it just didn't grab me. That's fair enough. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. This isn't a film that has a sense of, of freedom or exploring the open plains. This is there is a final mission that these guys have to do. And, and there's, there's, there's one getting... scene which feels really where well, they're on a train with this young army guy that feels really uh, fun and improvisational. Yes, that was. Funny. And, and that was kind of my favorite scene in it because I was like, oh yeah, I wish I just wish there was more of this energy. To, and I understand, you know, transporting a corpse, at least one of them is. <laughs> in a state of deep grief yes but... which I thought was handled very well particularly the scene where it was picked body up because it was of course at the time as well of the complete blackout of the coffins returning home the media blackout that the government insisted on because it didn't want to lose the war public relations war and again the whole thing is it's filmed in that Richard Linklater way that he does very well in that he feels like someone who's just standing there and doesn't want to get in the way so you do kind of get an overview and it's in this massive hangar and everyone there is grieving but the things that happen within it in terms of again it's like a print the legend film it's like yeah what do you choose to believe the way that information is revealed in that scene along with the emotional heft of the Steve Carell character having to go to pick up his son's body I thought just made that one of the best scenes of the year but there's nothing showy about it it's all in the writing it's all in the performance but very, very canny in terms of the visuals. So Muller, played by Lance Fishburne, has become a man of God, and Sal is... Uh, is some bar, he runs a bar. Yes, yes, he runs a bar. He runs a, a bar that does have a lot of you know, red neon in it, and is an atheist. And there is one scene where they're talking to him about what he should do, because he's getting lots of advice from the military there in terms of what he should do with his son's body. And it's almost like a good and a bad angel. And the way it's framed is that, yeah, and they're both giving him advice... It was very subtle, but I thought it was really wry and quite funny. It's also one of those films where it's like, wow, this is a period film now, and I remember 2003 very vividly, but this is a period film, because it's just at the time when mobile phones were becoming a big thing, and you could get 500 minutes of free chat and things like that, and it's like, yeah, this was a long time ago now. And that, but that was like an amazing thing, that you could talk to someone on your plan for free. Wow, so now we are at our number one films. So, I'll go first because my number one was your number six, which was Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Winner of Best Actress for Frances McDormand this year at the Oscars. So Frances McDormand plays Mildred, this woman whose daughter, just under a year earlier, was raped and murdered, horrifically murdered as well and you get like a glimpse of what happened to her which is really shocking and the police haven't been able to solve it so she rents three billboards that are very near her house and basically puts messages up there to goad the local police chief chief willoughby played by woody harrelson into doing something about it and from there it's about how some people are on her side some people are really not on her side including family members 
and what she will do to basically come to terms with the fact that her daughter's dead and she blames herself as much as anyone else for the fact that her daughter's dead. And it's just this really expertly written, really funny, extremely well-played character study of grief and what you do to just get on with things and the ways that people will lash out when they have had something terrible happen to them. Mildred is a pretty unlikable character in first. You know, she's very angry and kind of pretty spiteful. But it's because I think that she's, she's very clever and she's very canny and she's very grief-stricken. But yeah, she is spiteful. There is a scene that she has with Woody Harrelson where it's like, wow, you are not... To Martin McDonough, you are not trying to make your main character likeable. But you get the humanity of it through what happens in the film. And it's also one of those films where I thought Woody Harrelson was a dead cert for Best Supporting Actor because he's so good. But then... Sam Rockwell as Dixon, a racist cop who works under Woody Harrelson's Willoughby. And he has a very interesting arc over the course of the film. And again, it's like he is not he is not a likeable character at the beginning. And you could argue at the end he's not particularly likeable. But you understand him, I think. And you understand the element of humanity to him. So it's, again, it's, it's a film that actually came in for some controversy, I think, of the fact that it was saying there are these people that we are supposed to be sympathising with, but actually they have... They're pretty abhorrent on some... But they have troubling flaws, yeah. I don't know, I didn't think that. It's one of those that where you understood what had made people the, like the way they are over the film and you understood their actions. And isn't that what we need now? Some understanding? Mm. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I was troubled by some of the aspects of some of the film's handling of race and some sort what of... Way? Uh, just in terms of it's like... I, I get the point that you're making here in terms of the need for understanding the rest of it. But just there are certain scenes that felt... And I know uh, that, that sort of crossed the line into being a little... Very deliberately provocative, but occasionally felt they went. They just got slightly too crass. I don't think anything was crass. I actually think are you talking about the scene when she baits him. Yeah, and I thought that was actually very well played because you see the ignorance of that character in the way that he responds. But she basically goads him by using the N word, and he takes issue with the fact that she's using the n-word when she should not her use of the n-word but it's the ignorance of the character and that he does not understand what she is basically doing to him there and what she is accusing him of because he is someone who has avoided legal retribution for what has been in the past police brutality and race-based police brutality i thought that scene was very interesting and and very well written. She knows how to push people's buttons and it shows the ignorance of that character in what he was getting offended by. That's three awards. What's your number one film and is it going to be winning Oscars? Um, my, my number one film of the year was um, First Reformed, written and directed by Paul Schrader, um, still probably best known as the writer of Taxi Driver. It won a lot at the uh, sort of in, the spirit in the Gotham Awards and it's not impossible that uh, Ethan Hawke could get best actor number for it. He plays um, uh, a Reverend Toller, who's a pastor of the First Reformed Church uh, in sort of rural New York. And it's essentially a study of one man's all-consuming struggle with his faith. Did you see the doctor? You need someone to take care of you. I want you to be happy. I know that nothing can change, and I know there is no hope. Reverend Toller? Yes, Mary? You must come over. You must come over now. And the idea that despair born of belief, and the idea that Toller is an incredibly erudite, well-read man, but he's every waking moment, you know, the idea that he's kind of 
through intellect, damned himself. He, he sees too keenly, and that sort of cuts into him and the fact that he, he questions everything. And it's a, it's a film that kind of reminds, reminded me a lot of... My, 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 head for, my head for film names at this minute, like A Diary of a Country Priest. Oh, right, okay, which is the film by Drea. Drea. Um, uh, sorry, Bresson, not Drea. Bresson, okay. Bresson. I say. Um, uh, and essentially, it is just a very icy, meditative look at this, at this man who is in a tremendous amount of existential pain and how he can't really be comforted by anyone around him. And every moment of his, of his waking day, he's aware of how he falls short. And you know, there's the part done partly through voiceover, but uh, Ethan Hawke is absolutely remarkable. He's sort of pinched and uh, but he, and he's really trying to relate to his increasingly small congregation um, but essentially what kind of proves the, the tipping point is this one young pregnant woman from his con- from his promised congregation asks to, um, him to counsel her husband and her husband is an environmentalist who is basically dealing with the fact that the planet is irro- is basically at this point irrevocably fucked and Toller you know he's somebody who's very much on Toller's level and they have these diff- this different type of guilt and this different type of you know of, of this crisis essentially something happens that kind of puts Toller in a position where he essentially takes up the charge and say anything more than that would be really would be to spoil it but it was a film that reminded me a lot of silence the martin scorsese film okay yeah. in terms of a man but where that is where that's kind of about the kind of the arrogance of just true belief this is a film that is very this is you know basically about the pain of compromised belief yeah and it's philosophically I think it's got a lot going to going for it there's you know there's a sort of talk of Kierkegaard and the uh, Thomas Merton in it and it, there is there's one scene in it which is very hokey which I can only describe as a magical mystery tour but again it, it is a film that takes both from transcendental and from magical realist cinema and the final act especially the climax is probably it's by turns both sort of harrowing really harrowing and ecstatic ecstatic in the religious sense of the word yeah it's just it's a film I, I walked out of actually genuinely feeling feeling pretty shaken you always see these reviews saying this is Schrader's best film in 20 years and those things where you read reviews saying it's so-and-so's best film in 20 years think okay whatever but this I think is his best film in 20 years 20 years ago he made Affliction and Affliction was absolutely brilliant and since then uh, I mean I liked Autofocus the one he did about the Hogan's Hero guy who was also a sex addict and came to a very sticky end that was good but he hasn't made a great film since Affliction this was also filmed in Academy Ratio, wasn't it? Yes. So, so square like the old TV sets. and uh, The opening credits reminded me very much of actually weirdly of Rebecca. Oh, interesting. Okay, so that's your number one film of the year. I think some very interesting films released this year. Not a huge amount of amazing films released this year, but I think there were some absolutely great films released. And then in terms of... Honourable mention. What's your honourable mention? My honourable mention is isn't one isn't a film that I think is by any means a masterpiece. It's Creed Two, which we didn't end up talking about in the podcast, which is essentially both a sequel to the first Creed and a spiritual sequel to Rocky Four, in mm. that it has Adonis Creed, played by Michael B. Jordan, facing off against the son of Ivan Drago, you know, the uh, sort of the muscle bound Russian who killed uh, who killed his dad. If he dies, he, he dies. dies. That was just more Arnie for me. Um, but the, I, I guess an honourable mention because it's, it had an incredibly difficult act to follow. That was you know, The original film was directed by Ryan Coogler, who, who did Black Panther this year. Creed Two was directed by uh, Stephen Kaplan Jr., an indie director before he, he took this up. And it gets an honourable mention because during the 
final fight there is sort of the there, the, where was my sort of most entertaining moment where where you just find yourself grinning uh. where it's like yeah this has really been earned the emotion here has really landed the performances have been great and could be you know, you know under other circumstances this could be really cheesy but this just they, they've just landed it and I just sort of walked out going yeah I, this, this isn't going to make my top 10 list but make my top 20 but this has got for the most just entertaining moment of the year and watching it I recommend you watch it cause you'll, and you'll know what it is well, my honourable mention is one that I actually thought about including in my top ten, but I thought, no, I'll just stick to films that got a cinema release. And it's Incident in a Ghostland, which is directed by Pascal Loggia, who did, or Laugia, who did Martyrs many years ago. Martyrs? Martyrs, that's right. Martyrs! <laughs> <laughs> he did the end scene of Batman vs Superman. So Martyrs is one of those films that I think is very, very divisive. Incident in a Ghostland, I think, is also a film that is quite divisive. Uh, It's about this young girl who moves into this house in the middle of nowhere with her mum and her sister. On the first night, there is a home invasion by some very insane people who do some very horrible things. Skip forward about ten-odd years, and the young girl's become a successful horror writer but her mum and her sister are still in this house. Her sister just isn't able to reconcile what's happened on that night, so she has to go home and revisit the past, and many, many insane things then happen, and it's uh, an incredibly visceral film. It's very violent, it's very visceral, but I thought that that the relationship between the sisters kind of elevated it above just torture porn. I thought there were some very interesting things going on there. And it's actually played very well as well by the two younger actresses and the two older actresses as well. And yeah, I thought it was a great film. There is a slightly unfortunate coda to the film that one of the younger actresses was badly injured when she fell through sugar glass that actually turned out to be not as breakaway as they wanted it to be and um, sliced her face. And she is now suing the film because of yeah, health and safety wasn't up, yeah. to, up to scratch on it. So it's um, so yeah, that's an unfortunate coda to the film. But, um, but yeah, I still thought it was an impressive film. So most disappointing, I will go first if you don't mind. So my, yeah. so my most disappointing is a film that got a lot of praise this year, but I was left rather cold by it. Hereditary, which is the directorial debut of Ari Aster. And it's a horror film about... Um, and Tony Collette is a woman who's clearly it suggested some kind of trauma issues from her past. She... And we added there's a, there's a history of mental illness that runs in her family. Yeah, and, uh, and, and her mother dies. But then there's some other things that happen that are very, very shocking and very traumatic as well. And there's a real sense of grief to this film. That it's oppressive. It's oppressive grief, isn't it? It's... It is, and it just completely smothers any kind of horror. Yes, if Leave No Trace was decency porn, then I think that Hereditary is just misery porn. And I just thought that Ari Aster would thought that he was doing some amazing things with the horror film because he hasn't seen the horror films it was like this is this no, has been I, done before better that's the thing is I thought I thought I found the mood really effective and it is a film that is both that is embalmed in grief and despair that are so overwhelming yeah, almost almost psychotic grief and despair which turned me off to be honest I thought I'm sorry but you're trying to have it both ways you're trying to present this thing that's almost like um, a Todd Salon's film in terms of how raw the emotion is but then you're also trying to get your insidious type scares in there as well and I didn't well, I thought the some of the scares were really effective there's that one jump moment A Quiet Place wins 
the best jump moments of the year. This had the biggest jump moment of the year. I mean, there is one moment, and you'll know what it is when you see it, but it went through me. I mean, I actually left my seat when it happened. Yeah, that was really and, and he never came back really down. He's actually no, I he's was just hanging off the ceiling. He's actually he's actually floating up there like a like like in like in the original Mary Poppins. And the ending I thought was really silly, and it was trying to do things that other more modest. I agree. Films film films should never try to do things. No, indeed, the other horror films had done far better. But it was, and again, I thought the reason that you're making these decisions is because I don't think you understand how standard a lot of what you're doing is particularly that ending which i thought this is just silly now i'm afraid this this just hasn't worked and a lot of the themes that you're trying to now introduce in a more kind of horror setting i'm sorry and i won't say the films that it's like because that would be spoiling it but uh, but you liked it didn't you i know i thought, I thought, I thought <laughs> it was much more effective and interesting than um but then again i am less... the ending work for you yeah i Did thought it? i thought they'd set it up mm. <laughs> but, can't well, really talk about it without spoiling it but uh, yeah. my, my most disappointing film was uh, strange enough given that my, my second place is occupied by uh, my best films is occupied by a Netflix, Netflix title my most disappointing film is also a Netflix title which is Mute uh, the Duncan Jones sci-fi the long long awaited Duncan Jones sci-fi noir yeah, he uh, talked about it when he came to visit um, when I was at the London Film Festival back in about 2011 uh, he came to visit after a screening and do a Q&A after a screening of Source Code and he was talking about how he'd been working on it for, an, for a while now and in fact he'd written it I think just after getting out of film school before doing Moon before doing Moon right and it's a much bigger and more ambitious film about this guy who, you know as it turns out in the final script it doesn't seem to have been touched since he stuck <laughs> in his drawer as a student uh, Alexander Sasgard plays this mute Amish bartender whose girlfriend vanishes and he's wandering through and a neon lit futuristic I think it's New York it's Berlin isn't Berlin it? is it Ber- oh, yeah it's yeah. Berlin isn't it Cause, and, which, which is, which but you never guess, guess it's Berlin yeah which is it's just so anonymous it's so Blade Runner there are two sort of AWOL army surgeons one who's played by Justin Through, the other by Paul Rudd Paul Rudd's got this porn star Tash and they're both violent and a bit creepy and it's just such a mishmash of all these different things that have clearly just fed, been fed into it and churned up and what it spits out is like this is it's just incoherent it's not interesting enough on a scene-by-scene basis you've got um dominic monaghan playing like a south african sex like fetish doll collector in like one scene and it's like which is like yeah he's dressed up as a geisha as well and it's like you haven't earned any of this like given the the and it's and it's really obvious why it never got made you know it's a much bigger budget it feels like a bigger budget film to moon that i would be surprised actually if it was necessarily yeah it's it's, it's just rampantly undisciplined it is the sort of film that like a film school student might write and then stick and draw and and it's clear that netflix better or worse is giving free filmmakers a lot of creative freedom but it you know in the case of this and other films a lot of them sort of end up kind of hoist on their own petard I agree with that. I thought that it was... Uh, Apart from Annihilation, which is a masterpiece. Minus, <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, I thought Mute was a film I almost turned off after half an hour. because I thought, this is so boring and so leaden and so adolescent in its dialogue. This seems like the work of someone who's read a lot of science fiction and has just been dumped by their girlfriend and is now going to write an epic story to win her back. But actually, this story is not interesting, and it's in no way insightful, and it's just the ruminations of someone who's a bit upset because their girlfriends chucked them. And yeah, half hour, and I thought, right, I'm out. And then Paul Rudd turned up, and I thought, okay, he's bringing a bit of life to this film, so I will watch it. And I 
what's the next hour and a half because it's a solid two hours isn't it mm. it's like oh god it is a huge chore watching that film Jesus it's so boring it is it's boring and it's rubbish and as you said you thought that these sets were borrowed from, from altered Netflix. carbon altered carbon yeah there are, scenes, there are street scenes and it was like I'm sure this is they've just moved the bins around it did seem yeah, visually very very similar to that and the thing is it's set in Berlin and Berlin is such a, unique, a visually yeah. Yeah, unique city. There are lots of things in Berlin. You could do an Alphaville. So the same way that Jean-Luc Godard made the futuristic Alphaville by just going to areas of Paris that... Hadn't really been captured on film very much. And filmed them from slightly different angles and made a film that looked very, very futuristic. I thought you could easily do that with Berlin. It will be interesting to see what Duncan Jones does next because he had a great debut with Moon. Source Code, I thought, was a very good film. I really enjoyed that. Haven't seen Warcraft... And this one, I didn't think it was very good. So it'll be interesting to see what he does next. Yeah, no, his uh, Moon was described as like the most promising debut in years. And I thought Sorscope was very, as you say, very good. Um, but yeah, so he's, kind of, he's kind of on a 50-50 hit-miss yeah, ratio. Next one the land, doesn't it? Well, should we stay with Netflix then for your worst film yeah, of the year? Yeah, my worst film of the year. That was still wasn't my worst film of the year. My worst film of the year was Cloverfield, The Cloverfield Paradox. What, what even to say about it? There's a space station, they're blasting a hole in the universe to try and generate power because there's an energy crisis and... Weird things start happening, and then eventually the Cloverfield monster turns up. And it's not very good And all. And it's clearly been retrofitted to be a Cloverfield film, but it's not been retrofitted in a way that is... It, you know, whereas Cloverfield, 10 Cloverfield Lane had clearly been retrofitted to be a Cloverfield film, it, it was a really good premise to start with, whereas this... they've The, the reason it's called the Cloverfield Paradox is because they think paradox somehow justifies it not making any sense. And, you know, and nobody's particularly good. Like, it's got, like, Guga Martha Roar in it... And Daniel uh, Brühl, Daniel Brühl, David Oyelowo is in it. It's got Chris O'Dowd. Chris O'Dowd, Zizi, um, Zhang Zi, and just weird things start happening. And I I managed to get through most films. On this took me about half a dozen. What it was almost like taking my medicine or eating that bit on the plate that you don't really want, but you know you've been told it's good for you, and just having to do it in small portions and just kind of slowly eke my way through it it just it's nonsensical it's just it's rules are illogical and the, all the actors are trying quite hard but you don't really care about any of the characters and then at the end the, again I don't even care I'm spoiling the fucking Cloverfield monster turns up and you go why is this here yeah indeed it's one of those I watched it all in one go because it was the first film I watched I was having surgery earlier this year so I didn't want to move and it's you know I mean it was very well done that it just appeared yeah. and they just and they did a massive Super Bowl it. ad and then they just dropped it on Netflix yeah saying so during the Super Bowl there was a five and they paid five million dollars for an advert that said after the Super Bowl you can see the new Cloverfield film on Netflix it's like wow yeah marketing budgets tend to be a lot more than five million dollars for a film like Cloverfield and yeah, well done you and well they, was, they got they got it from Paramount along with Annihilation yeah, presumably Paramount one paid 50 yeah. million for it which is again I would imagine that it paid for itself in terms of the amount of viewing in that first week it's funny it was because you told me about it on the Monday and saying yeah so there was a thing last night that said uh, the new Cloverfield film is going to be on Netflix after the Super Bowl so yeah it's there now and it's like oh wow oh wow and he said yeah apparently it's not very good it's like ah oh. but still that's really exciting <laughs> And I watched it and I was like, I am quite excited to watch this. And then that excitement soon Soon, soon dissipated. But it was like, oh, this isn't 10 Cloverfield Lane, is it? This reminds me of Event Horizon, another film that I thought could have been very good, but ultimately wasn't and didn't make sense. And, and didn't even have the schlocky charm that at least Event Horizon had. Yeah, it's kind of, it has some... 
It's a bit like the Adams family, isn't it? Because Chris O'Dowd loses a hand at one point that then comes to life and starts communicating, and it's like in a way, yeah, this has just not been set up, and there's no logic to it. No, it's not. There's no logic. There aren't. You could argue there aren't clear. Looking at a very basic level, you could go, oh, that's the same thing as in our nation because it's not quite quite clear, you know, why things are happening, how they're happening. And but with the annihilation, there's like an underlying. Once you dig down a bit, there's an underlying logic and there's kind of a scientific rationale behind it. This is just fucking nonsense. This is just incident with no purpose. Yeah, so I much prefer annihilation to the Cloverfield paradox. Oh yeah, I was about to say. Otherwise, we're about to have a, we're about to have a yeah. falling out. <laughs> yeah. This could be it. This was, this was a film that was yes, not good. But something on Netflix that I did like when I was recovering from surgery was the Punisher series, which I think I just liked watching John Bernthal rip people apart when I was feeling really quite ripped apart myself. Even though I only had up this surgery on my foot, and he was just ripping people apart, yeah, limb from limb. That was good. But yeah, Cloverfield Paradox, yeah, I wish they clear of it. My worst film, which is actually a film that's appeared in lots of people's best films of the year, is You Were Never Really Here, which is the Lynn Ramsey-directed film. It's a perfectly ironic title. Played at the LFF, because we saw it the October before last, didn't we? So, it's oh yes, but it did get released this year, didn't it? And yeah, so Joaquin Phoenix is this guy who was once a border agent and something terrible's happened and he now just... He's a hitman. Yeah, it's kind of like an enforcer, isn't he? And he gets recruited to... um, Rescue this little girl from like... From traffickers, and essentially, she like a senator's daughter or something. Yeah, like that. it's like, like it's the it's the most sort of pro forma like Liam Neeson in Taken, but it's being directed and treated as though these as, as an art house film, and that I think and I think Liam Ramsey's too interesting a director not to come up with the occasional occasional shot or occasional idea that maybe go oh that's interesting, and the idea this guy's fundamentally hollow and there's nothing to him and he's kind of been hollowed out by trauma and he's going through the motions. Again, making a f- it's really difficult to make a film about absence because because making a film about nothing isn't fundamentally interesting. It's why I say that so many film adaptations have, an, have issues doing The Great Gatsby because it's about the hollowness of opulence and all this glitz and glam, but you end up just making a film that's quite fun because it's full of glitz and glam. Whereas this is a film that kind of strips it all back and goes, okay, maybe we'll look at this like, like a bare bones. But it's, it's taking away all the kind of pulpy interest. I would, I have this confirmed, but I would say that Lynn Ramsey was also inspired by Bresson, who's another director who doesn't really show anything and tries to achieve a spiritual truth by having a very, very austere style to his films and a very austere acting style so that you project a lot of the of the meaning onto what you're watching. <laughs> and this one I just thought, I'm sorry, but again, this is much like Hereditary. This again seems to be an important director who is dealing with a genre... And they think they are coining these conventions when actually these are very, very standard conventions and you're not doing them particularly interestingly. There's nothing here that I thought hadn't been done much more interestingly before in much more modest films. And actually, it really reminded me of Kinjite, which is a Charles Bronson film from the late 80s, that I thought, you know what, there isn't much between the two films here other than some very arty direction. It's not a badly made film. I just It just really summed up, in some ways, the snobbishness of indie cinema that you can say, yes, we're going to make a very important film. It's like, no, you're making a standard thriller, but you're taking all the fun out of it. And, and now you're saying that makes it an important film. I'm sorry, no, I won't have that. Yeah, I don't get the love for this film. So that's You Were Never Really Here. So that's our review of the year. So we don't end on a rubbish film. 
what are the films that are coming up in 2019 that we'll be talking about? Well, we're going to start with a rubbish film, I think, because yeah, we're watch Welcome to Marwin. They're watching our New Year's Day, and the advance word on that is that it is not good. But big films that are coming out that I'm looking forward to, so Captain Marvel, Avengers Endgame. Yeah, Avengers Endgame. Avengers Endgame, I can't say I'm looking forward to it, but inevitably we will see it. Toy Story 4, Toy The Story Lion 4. King, Shazam, It Chapter 2. Um, oh yes, that'd be a good one. Us, the new one by Jordan yeah. Peele, which um, apparently the trailer for that is amazing. Glass, I'm looking forward to that. Dumbo. Dumbo, yeah, yeah indeed. And um, one of my, my film I'm going I'm I'm to say, I'm probably looking forward to far more than I should be. John Wick 3, Parabellum. It's so self-important, the, the subtitle for that film, Parabellum. If John Wick 3 lives up to the promise of the end of John Wick 2, that the entire world is going to be out for him, then... Have you not seen the shots of him like being chased by police cars while riding a horse under an L train? No, but that sounds like it's going to be good. And Jacka Houston's in it. She is, that's right, and the... But the John Wick films are like... There is a great John Wick film to be had. We haven't had it yet. We've had Ellen. Oh, I, think, I think number two is pretty... It's, a part, it's, not, it's not flawless, but it's, it's pretty special. Well, the first hour, I thought, was actually really quite dull. As soon as he gets back to New York, though, I thought it just really kicked into gear, and I really enjoyed it. And it has the best shootout when they are using their silences in that train station, and they're shooting at each yeah. other, and no one else notices. But yeah, or when, fucking great. Or when he, he, he's, he's, uh, he's executing all those people in the art all those, all those yes. uh, goons in the art gallery, and the blood never hits the painting. That's right, yes. Uh, also, uh, Once Upon a Time in a Male Gaze, aka Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh yes, indeed, the Quentin Tarantino one about Manson, we will uh, yeah, inevitably see about that. Uh, one that I am actually very, very, very much looking forward to is Star Wars Episode Nine. Yep, uh, Joker. Yes, Joker, with which stars Joaquin Phoenix, who was in You Were Never Really Here. So, hmm, we'll see. Oh, yes, again. Spider-Man Far From the... Home, oh, Dark yeah, Phoenix, yeah. Godzilla King of the Monsters. Yeah, looking forward to that one. Men in Black International. <sighs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Detective Pikachu. Stan and Ollie, which is I, you've seen and I haven't, but I am looking forward to that. Yeah, Detective Pikachu. I'll let you watch that one. Uh, <laughs> Rocket Man, Pet Cemetery, Gemini Man, mm. <laughs> Untitled Terminator sequel. <laughs> I am quite looking forward to that actually because that's got James Cameron involved yeah. and Linda Hamilton's back. So yeah. yes, I am quite looking forward to that one. Artemis you know what Fowl. What's that? Kenneth Branagh about uh, based on the book books by Ewan Colfer about this hyper intelligent Irish kid billionaire sorry millionaire who basically un- uncovers a secret world of hi- hi- secretly hyper technologically advanced world of fairies and begins and basically decides to kidnap one and hold them for hostage sounds good it's, it's mad it's a book I, I read this i read the whole series when i was a kid and uh, it's been a long time in coming and yeah well let's hope it's not mortal engines <laughs> a film that we're not even dignified by talking about no well i haven't seen it rob loved it <laughs> <laughs> he yes. really loved it he really didn't love it um, another one I'm looking forward to although it will probably disappoint is Battle Angel Alita just because um, Battle I'm... Angel Alita yes <laughs> why are you not looking forward to it <laughs> no sorry I, 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 I said a different word instead of Alita there and the joke clearly didn't land alright oh, no <laughs> it's good to end on one of your obscure jokes um, listen, listen to the playback and see if you can pick up what I actually say and then decide whether or not you think that has any comedic mileage in it. Battle Angel Alita. Alita. Eh? I'm just going to repeat it now. We'll cut well, out my repeating it. Sorry. Battle Angel Lolita. Lolita. Oh, I completely missed that you said that. Well, that's very good. I'm going to leave all that in, by the way. 
Yeah, Battle Angel and Lolita. <laughs> that would be a very interesting film. I would like to see a remake of Nabokov's Lolita in which she's a Battle Angel and... Just murders everybody. Just yeah, so murders when, the creepy perv. When, is it Humbert Humbert, is that his uh, name? Yeah. When he gets a bit handsy, she tears his hands off and sticks them where... Anyway, it's fine. I'll probably watch it thinking Battle Angel Lolita would be a more interesting film than this. Christoph Waltz would be good casting for her. Yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, anyway, <laughs> as we are now rambling, so on. that brings a uh, yeah, 2018 to a close. That does bring 2018 to a close. So, Rob, thank you for some splendid film chat this year. And you, and thank you as always, uh, dear listener, for well, I guess I'm for continuing yeah, to, to listen to, 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 to our ramblings. Yeah, exactly. For over 50 episodes. So, yes, thank you for that. We do wholeheartedly appreciate it. And we will be speaking to you very soon. The one that's coming.